Well, the title of our devotion tonight is A More Excellent Sacrifice. A More Excellent Sacrifice. As you think about even some of what I touched on in my prayer, the reason or the need for there to be a sacrifice at all, it was because of sin. And as we think about sin, sin is merely anything that violates God's standards of what is right. Something that would be offensive to God because it violates his upright standard, his standard of what he says is acceptable to him. And the thing about God being perfectly holy is that if God's perfectly holy, he can't have fellowship or he can't be in close union with sin because that would taint his holiness. And so the reality is if God is set apart, that's what it means to be holy, if God is set apart and holy, he cannot have anything to do with sin. So in a sense, sin brings about spiritual death because sin separates mankind from God and his love because of his holiness. Now that's a real problem because of course mankind, if they know anything about the two options for eternity, they know that eternity can either be spent with God in the place where God is, which the Bible refers to as heaven, or eternity can be spent in the place where God is not, which the Bible refers to as hell or the lake of torment, or the place of torment, the lake of fire. So you think about those two options, and naturally anyone who is thinking clearly would say, I want to spend all of eternity in the place where God is, because God is good. God is loving. Everything that is wonderful is where he is, and everything that's the opposite of that is where he isn't. And so any person would naturally want to have that be the outcome of this life, that they would go to be with the Father in heaven. Now, the one who understands the Bible sees that God doesn't want us to just be trying to look forward, look, be future-looking, and only be focused on where we'll spend eternity, but that we would see that eternal life has a quality and it, has, uh, it refers to even a, a type of life or a way of living here in time, a quality of living that we can experience with what's left of this time that we have here on earth. And so God wants us to experience life He says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And when he says that, he's not just referring to future life. He's referring to present life that would have purpose and meaning and could be described by God's way of living. And then an eternity to follow that would be spent where God is, a life that would have no end, but a life that would be absolutely perfect and wonderful because it's going to be spent apart from sin, in a place where there's no sin, there's no sorrow, and there's no sadness, there's no sickness, in the perfect place where, what God, where God has prepared for us. Because he's perfect, and naturally the place that he's prepared is then perfect. And so you think about even the message of the Bible, it's how can a sinful man be put in a right standing with a holy God? And if God is holy and man is sinful, how can a sinful man ever find himself find himself in fellowship and in union with or in closeness or in proximity to or in positionally a right standing with God or be viewed as righteous because to be with God is to have to be viewed as righteous. Now the Bible of course paints a very what could be depressing picture about that because the Bible says there's none righteous, no not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's none that seeks after God. There's none who is actively even having that mindset of, I want God in my life. And so that's the Bible's declaration, not mine. And because the Bible says all of those things describe us, that we're actually described as 
alienated from God, that we're estranged from God, that we're described as God's enemy, that we're described as dead in trespasses and sins, that's a pretty bleak picture. But that's what the Bible pictures or describes as being the fallout or the result of man being associated now with sinfulness, the sinfulness of Adam, the race that he was born into being identified with Adam, but his own sinful choices too. And so the message of the Bible ultimately then is, how is God going to rescue those that he loves so desperately who are identified with sin and want to be where he is, a place where everything is right? Well, something's going to have to be done about man's sin. And that's ultimately the message of redemption, that God is going to have to make a way where there was no way. He's going to have to look. He looks at man in their need, in their time of need, where man is hopeless and helpless and ultimately looking forward to an eternity spent in hell. That person, God, looks at him in their time of need and he says, I want to make a way to make that right. But if the consequence of being identified with sin is death, or if sin separates, death separates us, we're talking about spiritual separation from God, and if that's the consequence of sin, and all men are identified with sinfulness, well, then we got, again, a real problem. We're going to have to die because of our sin, or somebody else is going to have to die in our place. See, the Bible says there's no way around it. There has to be the just payment or the just penalty that is owed for sin is death for sin. So either we're going to have to die because we're all in debt. We're all, we're all guilty. The Bible declares none, there's not one single person that deserves to go to heaven on the basis of their own efforts because even our best stuff stinks. The Bible says even our works of righteousness are filthy rags as it compares to God. But let's just even say that that wasn't true. Even our best efforts at being right would fall short because God's standard is perfect righteousness. The Bible, in fact, declares that if we offend the law or violate God's standards of what is right, even in one point, we're guilty of violating the whole law. And so, the Bible over and over declares that man is guilty, that man deserves the punishment that is coming his way, that unless something is done to rescue mankind, mankind is going to spend all of eternity apart from God. But that's the message of the Bible. It's a redemption love story. It's a story about how God saw man in, their time, in his time of need and made a way for man to be reconciled to God or to be redeemed out of the predicament that he found himself in, to be saved Sometimes people don't understand what this, the word saved means. The Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved, thinking there's something I must do to be saved. And the, Philippian, the Paul's response to the Philippian jailer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, saved from what? Saved from the hell you deserve to heaven you don't. On what basis? on the basis of Christ having paid for your debt, having satisfied the debt you owe where you owed, where he became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. So as Christ died on the tree, on Calvary's tree, he wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for your transgressions and your iniquities and your sins and mine. So as he died, he died as the innocent, perfect, spotless lamb of God who is dying in the place of the guilty so that the guilty, what? The guilty could be set free, not because the debt was overlooked, but because the debt was paid for by another in the form of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So now once that payment is credited to my account, God can look at me and he can say, I see you clothed in the righteousness of my son. You are now in a right standing with me, not because you are right, but because Christ's righteousness has been credited to your account. Now how did I get a hold of that? 
by believing, by accepting, by putting my confidence in, by receiving the gift of eternal life that God offered to me as a result of his grace and his love for me. Now, we understand that that redemption love story is certainly, the, if not the primary theme of the Bible, it's one of the primary themes of the Bible. The story about how God could rescue those who were hopeless. That's you and that's, that's me. And so if that's the message of the Bible, well, how does God get around to telling that story and explaining to man that an innocent is going to have to die in the place of the guilty and explaining to man that apart from me, you're hopeless and explaining that it's only God who can save. You can't save yourself because if you could rescue yourself or save yourself, we wouldn't have needed the Savior, Jesus Christ, to come to earth and die on a cross for sins that were not His. And so that's the message of the Bible. So we had previously been looking at or started in, it was way back in February. Most of you may not even remember that we started this series. But we started this series, Only God Can Save. And we looked at, we're starting to look at some of the Old Testament pictures of how there was going to have to be an innocent who would take the place of the guilty to rescue man from the debt he owed for his own sinfulness. And so God has been warning about this outcome of sin and how sin would separate, how sin would bring about spiritual death from the very beginning. And we covered this in that first message in this, again, Only God Can Save series. In Genesis chapter 2, turn there if you're not there. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 4, but let's start in Genesis chapter 2. We'll pick up the pace here a little bit. But in Genesis chapter 2, this is God, where God starts explaining the problem, the predicament, the bind that mankind was in, so to then set up the idea that he's going to have to be the one who provides a rescue, provides a solution. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you, that you eat of it you shall surely die. And that phrase we brought out last time we were in this series, that phrase means you shall, you shall surely die. That phrase, if it was translated more literally, it means dying you shall die. In other words, dying spiritually, which happened instantaneously as a result of sin, sin separated man from God and his holiness. The moment man chose to rebel against God, choose the alternative, which was proffered by Satan as an alternative to God's truth. When man, when man responded and accepted as true Satan's lie, that separated men from God spiritually. So dying spiritually you will eventually die physically. And how long was that? Well, it wasn't immediate. Adam went on to live hundreds of more years before his physical life came to an end, but it was inevitable. Dying spiritually, you now will die physically. Apart from that, man would have likely, the tree of life would have lived indefinitely. There wouldn't have been death. But death came into the world physically and spiritually as a result of man's sin. And so this became the predicament that every man faced. It wasn't just Adam. So Adam went from this position of living in a perfect world that was untainted where he was in complete fellowship or had access to God whenever he wanted to. He, even there's a sense that perhaps he spent a lot of time with God, maybe even walking and talking with God, though there's different interpretations of that. But a close, intimate relationship with God that had not been broken yet and was untainted because sin hadn't come into the picture yet. Well, Having chosen sin, Adam and Eve ch having chosen that, it disrupted everything. It tainted everything. It cursed everything. The very world that man lived in and 
man himself, so that man was now in a place he had never been before. He was in a place where instead of being in union and fellowship with God, he was now separated from God. And so that being the case, we started to see that that was something that then spread from one man to the next man because everybody was now in a position where they had this disposition to be influenced by sin. This predicament became the same predicament, the predicament of Adam became the predicament of all men. As that influence of sin passed from one generation to the next, as the world and everything in it became tainted by sin. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, and that's a reference to Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And so as we observed last time, the consequence of sin represents the kind of problem that man cannot fix on his own. Now, even though man tries to fix that problem, and some of the ways that man tries to fix their problem with sin is man tries to make himself acceptable to God, tries to make himself good, tries to go through religious institutions to get right with God, tries to go through religious rituals to make himself right with God. When the reality is no religious institution, no religious ritual, no human effort could ever make a sinful man in a right standing with God. The only way a sinful man could ever be put into a right standing with God is if God made that unrighteous man right again by paying and taking away that unrighteousness, putting that debt or putting that unrighteousness on his son and then imputing his son's righteousness to their account so that God could see them now as righteous because of the work and the sacrifice of Christ. They're now standing in the shoes of Christ because they put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so that's the message that the Bible is getting to. Man is is trying to fix this problem, but he can't. God alone is going to have to come to the rescue. And that first Old Testament picture of this that we looked at was the symbolic physical covering that God provided of animal skins for Adam and Eve after they sinned. Now, although it wasn't stated in detail, this involved the death of a substitute in the place of the guilty. How do you think Adam and Eve could be clothed with the skins of an animal apart from that animal dying in their place? That animal had to die so that they could be covered, they could be clothed with the sin of that animal. And so we don't know exactly all of the details about it because the Bible doesn't say specifically, but assumptions can be can be made. We won't, we won't go into that in more detail tonight, but you have that first picture of an innocent dying in the place of the guilty, not because of the innocent sin, but because of the guilty sins. And now that death takes place so that the innocent, having died, can now provide a covering for the sinfulness of the guilty. And so that was the first thing we looked at in Genesis chapter 3 where that happened. We had the original fall, the original sin, and then that original picture of a covering for sin provided through the death of a substitute in the place of the guilty. Now today in Genesis 4, we're going to look at the first example of lamb, a lamb being sacrificed as a symbolic illustration of God's plan to rescue man through the substitutionary sacrifice of an innocent in the place of the guilty, which we know, looking backwards, was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. But the first picture that a lamb, an innocent lamb, was going to have to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for the guilty, we see it here in Genesis chapter 4. So you should already be there. We're going to read just these first eight verses, and Lord willing, we'll get through them here relatively quickly. But verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, had 
his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So we start here with this two different kinds of sacrifices being brought to God. Now one is viewed as acceptable and it's accepted by God. One is unacceptable and it's not accepted by God. So the natural question is, how did Cain and Abel know what God's way involved? How did they know what the right way was? Now, it doesn't tell us here specifically. But the logical assumption is that God had revealed to them the necessity of a sacrifice and also his expectation regarding the specifics of that sacrifice. It's also reasonable to assume that God must have instructed them concerning the details of acceptable worship, although those instructions are not included in the Genesis narrative. And I hope you know that about the Bible. God chose to record certain aspects of human history and his dealings with man. He didn't record every conversation or every part of it. So we have to glean some of that between the lines, so to speak, as we look at Scripture. Now we have to be careful to be looking at the context, to be considering, is this consistent with what is recorded in Scripture? But Cain and Abel didn't make this up on their own. They got these instructions from someone. And that only person who could have done that would have been God as he communicated either directly to Adam and Eve who then communicated to Cain and Abel or he communicated to all of them at once. It could have happened on many occasions, more than once. We don't know just how much interaction God specifically had with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and those that were on the earth at that time. But we know that God made his expectation regarding the specifics of sacrifice and the necessity of sacrifice. He made it clear to them. And so what we have here is two different examples. One is responding in faith with humility and obedience. And that's the first one. That's the example of Abel. And it's not first in order in in terms of our story, but it's the first one we're going to look at. Now look at verse 4a. We'll come back to verse 3 for our other alternative But responding in faith with humility and obedience, we have Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. We see that in verse 4a. Now, as you think about this, faith ultimately involves being persuaded to take God at his word. So why is this an example of a response of faith? Why is it a picture of humility? Why does it show obedience to God? Because clearly God had given them these instructions. That's why that sacrifice was acceptable to God and accepted by God. But faith involves being persuaded to take God at his word. And different men at different time in human history were confronted with different amounts of God's truth, different parts of God's truth. Those individuals had choices to make. Either they would trust God, take God at his word, respond by believing that God knew best, heeding God's word, call that obedience, or they didn't. And they said, I know best. There's pride instead of humility. I'll do my own thing. There's disobedience instead of obedience. 
There's walking by sight by saying, I see a better path for my life instead of walking by faith, trusting that God knows the best path for my life. See, through the shed blood of an innocent lamb, we see another picture illustrating that the consequence of sin is death and that God would need to provide a substitute and innocent to take the place of the guilty. We see that here. Though there's not a tremendous amount of conversation or discussion about it here, we see another picture of it or an illustration of it here. See, sacrificial lambs symbolized Christ's future permanent and substitutionary sacrifice. The sacrifice of lambs was just a picture. It was done over and over and over again as a temporary covering for sin. But it, didn't, it wasn't the final solution to man's sinfulness. That was a picture pointing to the future, the final, the perfect, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away the sin of the world as He died for men's sins. Not some of them, for all of them. Not for some men, but for all men. As He died on Calvary's tree and He said, it is finished, paid in full. The debt's been satisfied. The question is, will you believe this? Will you trust this? Will you put your confidence in this? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift from God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Not to him who does not work, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly. His faith is credited to him for righteousness or counted for righteousness. You see, this is what the Bible is building towards, this idea that there would have to be another who would take the place of the guilty, and that sacrifice would have to be accepted in the place of the sinner as the payment or atonement for man's sin. And so, sacrificial lambs, they symbolized that. The innocent, spotless lambs, they had to be perfect, they did not have any blemish. We see that later on in the story. But those lambs died, their blood was shed, so that the guilty could go free, could live. That's the picture of Christ and his sacrifice for us. You see, vegetables wouldn't cut it. They couldn't cut it because there was no death or shedding of blood involved. And remember that the penalty for sin is death. So to stave that off, there'd have to be death as a payment for the debt that was owed. And those of you who believe vegetables are alive, this is clearly showing you that they're not. Because vegetables couldn't cut it because they weren't dying and shedding blood as a picture of the blood of Christ that would need to be shed. Now, what's the alternative to responding by faith? The alternative is to respond in unbelief with pride and rejection instead of with humility and obedience. To respond in unbelief with pride and rejection. And we see that with Cain in verse 3. And it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Is that what God had asked for? Now, again, it's not explicitly stated here, but it's stated by God's response to this. That's how we can infer that. We can draw an inference from the text that God hadn't asked for that. Now, others take another, other, there's other views of that, but I think that's the best one is that God had made his plan known and his expectation known. It wasn't it wasn't an issue that the tilling of the ground represented the sin curse. So just in very brief summary, some people say that the curse that was associated with disobedience, God said specifically to Adam, as a result of your sin, you're now going to have to toil, labor hard, and till the ground to bring fruit out of it. And so that 
Cain's approach was actually a representative of the sin curse. It wasn't by tilling the ground and cultivating the ground. It was associated with the sin instead of with the solution to that sin that would come in the form of a lamb who would take the place of the guilty. And so that God, for the first time ever, some would posit that God looked at these two things. These young men had no idea what was expected and that God looked at it and he found one favorable on that basis versus the other. Now, I'm not going to mock you for that view, but I just don't see that as the view that Scripture is laying out, especially when we've already had the innocent animals having to die so that their skins could clothe the unrighteous or guilty sinner in chapter 3. So that this idea that Cain and Abel would have not been aware of what God expected and that God somehow would have accepted one and not the other arbitrarily without them ever knowing what the standard is, that's just not the kind of just and fair God that we're dealing with. So I wasn't planning on going into that, but just in case some of you were, were wondering. Now, we see that pride and rejection are not overt or even necessarily conscious. Because as you look at what Cain did here and his perspective here, we don't have to read into that, that he knew he was being prideful to say, I'm going to do it a different way than what God prescribed. We don't even have to read into it that he was overtly, consciously rejecting God, though that's the effect of saying, I'll do it my way. In, in all likelihood, he had good intentions. In all likelihood, he maybe even had pure motives in the sense that his desire was to give the Lord his very best. How many people have had a pure motive or a heart desire to give the Lord their very best with religion and religious works and religious efforts? They meant well, but God says, I'm not asking for your best. Your best stuff stinks. I see your best stuff as unrighteous compared to my perfectly right standard. I didn't ask for that. I asked for you to come humbly to a place of seeing your need in my provision to deal with what you could never deal with on your own. Do you see that? And so there's a sense of, whether it's knowing or unknowing, whether it's conscious or unconscious, there's a sense of pride here and rejection in saying, I'll do it my way. And the reality is Cain likely was convinced his motives were pure and sincere in his desire to please God. He, he probably thought he was going to please God because it seems that that's true because he seems shocked that God gives him the response that he does. And we see the response that here. The next section is without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's a transdispensational principle. See, sincerity is not some synonymous with faith. Sincerity is often misguided. You can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. It's, it, it doesn't make you exercise faith to say, I'm sincere in my attempt to reach God in a different way or in a different manner or by a different means than he prescribed in his word. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus says. I am the door. By me, if anyone enters in, he shall be saved. There's no other way to the Father except through the Son. Faith in the finished work of the Son, Jesus Christ. But man, naturally, though, though sincere, can have misguided attempts to reach man on his terms. You see, there's only one response, only one of these responses symbolized a heart of humility, dependence, and trust. It was Abel's response. And that's why his response or his offering, his sacrifice was accepted. 
And you see that in verse 4b. And the Lord respected or accepted Abel and his offering, but he did not respect or accept Cain and his offering. And one of the things you should realize is that the rescuer determines the means of rescue, not the helpless man in peril. If you're drowning and somebody's going to swim out to rescue you, and I was a lifeguard for many years, you as the one who's drowning, the one in peril, you don't get to dictate the terms of the rescue. You either accept the rescue or you drown. Those are your choices. So you don't get to say as I swim out to you with a rescue buoy and I extend it to you so that you could float. You don't get to say, I want an orange buoy, not a red one. You don't get to say, come back and rescue me in 30 seconds, not now. You don't get to say, I'd rather you bring a boat out here. You don't dictate the terms of the rescue. The rescuer gets to dictate the terms of the rescue, and God has done that. He said, this is how you can be rescued. And there's only one way. There's only one door on the ark. Just like in Noah's day, one door on the ark, one way to be rescued. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. And it's only on His terms. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and it's not of works. And if you can't accept that, then you're rejecting God's way of rescue. And God's saying, I'm going to honor your choice, but it's a terrible choice because to reject my rescue is to reject me. To reject me is to spend all of eternity apart from me in the place where I'm not, which is the lake of fire. See, man must come to God on God's terms. This is why in Hebrews, God refers to Abel's sacrifice as a more excellent sacrifice. That's where we got our title, a more excellent sacrifice. Because in reference to Abel's faith, he says Abel's sacrifice was the more excellent sacrifice. Now, he couldn't have said that if Abel wasn't responding by faith because the passage that it comes from is called the Hall of Fame of Faith, not by the Bible, but by those who refer to this section of all these examples of faith. It couldn't be an example of faith in having a more excellent sacrifice if God had never told Cain and Abel the right way to approach him. But he had, and Abel was the one to exercise humility and dependence and trust and faith and approach God on God's terms. That's why it was a more excellent sacrifice. Well, what is the response here of Cain? You see, anger and dejection is a natural response to not getting your way. Just watch a kid pout when they don't get their way. Frankly, look at yourself in the mirror when you don't get your way. And so we see in Cain, verse 5b, the end of verse 5, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell, which means he looked dejected. You could see it on his face. And this disappointment was ultimately caused by arrogance, self-dependence, and pride, regardless of the perceived underlying motives and intentions. It doesn't matter what Cain's motives were. He was wrong. It, It doesn't matter what his intentions were. They were wrong because they excluded God. They didn't do it God's way. There's so much pride there. There's so much arrogance there. There's there's so much, I can do this my way. I can save myself. And you know, hell is filled with people and is going to be filled with more people. And the only reason that they're there is because they effectively said, I can do this my way. I can do this myself. In the Bible, the whole message of the Bible is that you're hopeless apart from God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Now imagine God loving you so much that he wanted to rescue you while you were hopeless 
And you went to hell anyway because you said, I don't need the salvation that you're offering. I'll do it my way. See, that road is paved with good intentions too because there's so many people who think they're doing it God's way because they've been deceived by themselves, they've been deceived by religion, they've been deceived by people around them, and they think that there's another way to the Father except for faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. Sad but true. Now, God provides second chances. This is the upbeat part I want to end with. Although God cannot accept any response apart from faith, he still loved Cain. I hope you see that. God still loved Cain. God is loving and gracious in his disposition toward men regardless of merit. That's what grace means. So God offers Cain some correction. God seeks to change Cain's heart. Read verses 6 and 7. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now he gives them some correction here. He gives them some instruction here. If you do well, meaning if you do what is right or if you were to listen to me, Will you not be accepted? That's how you can be accepted, is you can walk by faith. You can trust me and take me at my word. You can humble yourself in the sight of Almighty God. And if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, to ruin you, to control you. But what should be happening instead? You should rule over it. How? Because when you respond by faith. As you respond by faith, can you have victory over sin? Yes. Because God provides the victory. Because God knows best. Because God wants you to experience that way of living that he had planned for you. The abundant life. The life that's not in bondage to sin. But the life that's been made alive through his provision to deal with your sin, both in time and in eternity. Isn't that awesome? That's the kind of second chance, gracious kind of a God we have. He didn't didn't just kick Cain out. He didn't just throw the hammer at Cain. He gave him a chance to change his mind. If you read the story further, he actually made it possible for Cain to not be touched by anybody so that Cain would be protected. Now, what do you think God's motive in that was? To punish Cain? That's not the kind of God we have. God isn't in the business of punishing. He chastens his children. He disciplines his children with a motive in mind to bring about a change of thinking in his children. God didn't give up on Cain. God still pursued him, was still interested in him responding. Now, we don't know that he did. Some have argued about this. I'm not sure we know that he didn't. What ended up coming from his family, though, what ended up coming from his heritage is what led to the flood, I can say that, is that his heritage didn't end up being associated with a godly heritage. That ended up taking place through Abel's substitute, who was a future brother named Seth. And the line of righteousness was pictured through that line versus the line of unrighteousness and rejection was pictured through Cain. Now, does that mean Cain never responded? I don't know, but whatever happened, it ended up that future generations and subsequent generations We're not interested in the things of God so that by the time of Noah, they were described as only thinking and meditating on evil continually and doing evil continually. So every imagination of their heart was described as evil. That's what ultimately came from this rejection of God or at least the residue of it. it. 
So in any event, that wasn't the point. But God gave Cain a, change, a, a chance to change his heart. And Cain had a choice to make. Okay, so God, he sees us when we mess up, when we get proud, when we want to do things our way. He sees that and he wants to change our thinking. So Cain, Cain had that choice to make. Will I change my mind or will I harden my heart? And unfortunately, Cain decided to harden his heart. See, one, one option represents or it involves humility. To change your mind involves acknowledging that you were wrong. That's what we mean even by confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Our sins. That, means, that means to acknowledge that we're wrong. That takes humility to say, I was wrong. You were right, God. I will agree with you now. I'll say the same thing as you, God. And the other, though, to harden your heart represents ongoing pride. And Cain's heart was clearly hardened because we see that instead of responding to correction, he killed his brother. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, Jealousy was in this picture for sure. Pride, arrogance. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And there we have the first murder in the Bible. What was the ultimate cause of that? An unwillingness to respond by faith to what God was trying to do to change Cain's thinking. If God was directing an undertaking and Cain was walking by faith instead of walking by sight, if he, could have, if he could have seen that God knew best, we wouldn't have had the outcome that we have there. So we think about our little sermon here tonight, a more excellent sacrifice. The Old Testament is filled with pictures of what redemption will entail. And here we have, it's going to entail an innocent, again, dying in the place of the guilty. Lambs being sacrificed is one specific illustration of God's future plan to rescue man through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, in the place of the guilty. The just being sacrificed for the unjust. See, God consistently communicated the message that man was hopeless and unable to rescue himself apart from God's provision to deal with the consequence of man's sinfulness. Faith was demonstrated through taking God at his word and responding on God's terms. So we're starting to see what that would look like. Abel was our example of that versus Cain. So just as with Cain and Abel, you have many opportunities to respond to God in faith in your life. That's true as far as a point-in-time decision to put all of your eggs in the basket of believing that Christ made the payment that was necessary to satisfy the debt you owed when he died on Calvary. Call that justification. A point-in-time decision, am I going to trust God to rescue me from the consequences or the penalty of my sin? You have to make that decision at some point in life if you want to be saved. If you've made it, if you already decided that, if you already accepted that, the Bible says that you're already God's child and that he'll never let you go. Now, you have many more decisions to make throughout life, though. Now you are his child. Now he wants you to live in a certain way that he has prescribed for his children. So choices need to be made. Will I respond to God in faith? Will I accept God as being the one who knows better than I do? Or will I not? And your spiritual well-being hangs in the balance, not your spiritual destiny, because your spiritual destiny was sealed the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ to have paid for your debt on Calvary. But your well-being, your spiritual growth, 
your state of being in time. It all hangs in the balance determined by, will you walk by faith, will you trust God, or will you not? And so I hope, one of, for you believers here tonight, I hope that that example of Abel was encouraging because that's the example that God wants us to follow. And did, did Abel know all the reasons why? Perhaps as he was watching Cain do his own thing, did Abel even maybe think, hmm, maybe there is another way to do this? Per- perhaps, but what did he choose? He chose to walk by faith and trust God and do it God's way. And God what? God accepted that. But he couldn't accept the alternative that was demonstrated or illustrated by Cain. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we could have this, another reminder here that only God can save, that we could see it here that an innocent is going to have to take the place of the guilty. God is going to have to provide a way of rescue because mankind is hopeless. Pray that we could continue to even see more examples of that in the future as we look at the Old Testament to see some illustrations and pictures and symbolism of the coming rescue that you had planned that we know now involved the person and work of your son, Jesus. Pray that we could enjoy this food that you've given. Thank you for all the hard work that went into it. Pray that we could enjoy a time of fellowship here tonight. Keep everybody safe. In Jesus' name, amen.